right there, I just scared the shit out of my dog. Which dog? Galfrey. He doesn't like Galfrey. loud noises. I'm also amazed <laughs> that it's your biggest dog that is the most afraid of loud noises. And yes. you have three chihuahuas, which yeah. basically do nothing but make loud noises. He's such a chicken. He's <laughs> afraid of thunder now and fireworks and guns because he can't tell one from the other. So every night... I got three brave chihuahuas, including one who's blind, toothless, and extremely <laughs> overweight and walks into the curb, but he's willing to walk around, and the, the husky is constantly pulling to go home. Oh, goodness me. Chihuahuas, so, an amazing chihuahuas. piece of domestication and evolution. Yes. Well done. <laughs> Good introduction to explaining evolution. <laughs> Much like the guest that we had on a year and a half ago, Prasanta Chakrabarty, who is not a human biologist. Not at all. No, he, he studies, studies fish. fish. He does. At LSU. At LSU. And as much as LSU has an antagonistic relationship with my own university, Prasanta has a chapter in a book that I was an editor of a few years ago called Evolution Education in the American South wherein he used fish evolution to teach students. And one of our sort of overarching goals in this podcast is to make science more accessible to both students and a general audience. And Chakrabarty does the exact same thing in an equally, if not more interesting way. And so he read an excerpt from a book of his that is not quite out yet that seems to really be geared at bringing evolution to the general public. Yeah, he's, he's done a few TED Talks. He has written a book on uh, succeeding in academia. And this new book is called Explaining Evolution and Understanding Why It Matters More Than Ever. You all get a preview. Only our listeners, yes. <laughs> you get a preview. And we're going to append the, the great interview that we did. It's one of our you know, less listened to episodes. And, and that's nothing to do with, with Prasanta. It's that our human bio episodes tend to get more listens because we're generally a human bio podcast, but I really think it's important to be interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And the more I talk to people outside the discipline who are struggling with the same types of teaching and interpretation issues, the more I feel it's, it's important to do these sorts of episodes. And it's going to be super important this coming fall to have as many multimedia things to use in the classroom or online as you can possibly get. And so this might be another one of those very helpful resources. So if you like this excerpt, shoot him an email. You can find him online very easily and let him know. You want to know where to get his book and enjoy the interview. Hello, Sausage of Science folks. This is Dr. Prosanta Chakrabarty, uh, Curator of Fishes at LSU's Museum of Natural Science. And I'm going to read an excerpt from my new book, Explaining Evolution and Understanding Why It Matters More Than Ever. This book is not yet published. I'm still looking for a publisher. If you know somebody, let me know. This is an excerpt from Part 2, Revolution, Intro to Evolution. So I hope you enjoy. Look at your hand. Why do you have five fingers? Why not ten, or twenty, or one? Why do so many animals have five of these digits? Five seems to be the perfect number for most. Oddly, the first vertebrates to come onto land had many more, seven or eight. These earliest land vertebrates were fish crawling out onto land, at first very briefly, then steadily, progressively, for longer periods of time. 
as the descendants of that lineage became permanently established on land, the number of digits were reduced and stayed that way. How about hair? Ever wonder why it is where it is on your body? Or why you have it at all? Well, last I checked, we were mammals. See that belly button love of dairy? Yep, you are a mammal. But we are different from other mammals. Why do we stand upright? Sure, a kangaroo is a mammal that stands upright, but it has a nice thick tail to balance on, and we don't. What are we even doing? Bipedalism doesn't seem to have been the best idea. Doesn't your back, neck, and feet hurt after standing a while? Why are our backs curved worse than a busted fender on a rally car, instead of being straight like a rod? And why do we have to balance this giant head on top of that curvy spine? Seems like a bad idea. And nipples on men. What's up with that? Evolution. That's what's up. Thanks, I guess. But that's evolution. You don't get to start from scratch each time, redesigning the body for each new model. You have to build on what came before. And so sometimes you have to take a nice, straight, loosely connected fishbine and stick it together and prop it up with a few extra twists and turns. Every time I look at the human body, especially my own, and especially when sitting nearly naked waiting in the doctor's office, I think of the ways I would fix it. I think of our aquatic ancestors, the animals that first developed a vertebral column, i.e. your spine, lungs, digits, big compartmentalized brains and hearts, etc. I think of how much more comfortable we would be in the water, not fighting against gravity, just floating like a happy little astronaut in space. So many of our body parts were first evolved for use in water. I think of the gill arches we had that you can still see in the developing human fetus that transform into your larynx jaws and into the little bones that allow you to hear. I think of the muscles that help lift the gills in a shark being the same ones that are now the muscles of your neck and upper back. We didn't get our muscles from sharks. We did not come from them. But we do share a common aquatic ancestor a long, long time ago before bony and cartilaginous animals diverged. We had a more recent ancestor that was a bony fish, making all of its descendants, like us, technically bony fish too. All us bony fishes, trout, seahorses, donkeys, and humans, are more closely related to each other than any of us are to sharks. Cartilaginous fishes and bony fishes have been evolving independently for a long time. They stayed more similar to each other and to other our shared aquatic ancestors than the bony fish lineage. Some members of that bony fish lineage stayed in the water and continue to evolve to this day. Others left the water and became all of the land vertebrates or tetrapods. I sometimes wonder how cool it would have been if cartilaginous fishes had invaded the land too. Just think about it, land sharks. But perhaps that cartilaginous skeleton isn't strong enough to withstand the forces of gravity. Imagine standing on your floppy, cartilaginous ear. Luckily for us, the bony skeleton of our ancestors were strong, and the organs we have were all malleable enough for them to be modified by evolution to fit our needs. But that doesn't make us perfect. To the contrary, to fit our needs is not the same as perfectly designed. We had to twist and stretch and rework what was already there from our aquatic ancestors. We share a common ancestor with all life on Earth, but we share common ancestors with some parts of the tree of life much more recently than the 400 plus million year old fish that first came onto land. 
For instance, the common ancestor between us and our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees, was only about 6 to 8 million years ago. But that's a living relative. There were other species that lived even more recently that no longer walked the Earth. Some even less than 50,000 years ago. So what if there were more human species around today? Neanderthals and Australopithecus and Homo habilis? How would their presence shape our view of humanity? I would like to think that it would open our eyes to our shared similarities and help us fill the gap between man and animal. But in reality, I'm guessing we would focus on the differences. I know if there were more human species walking around today, that there would just be a ton of different kinds of bathrooms. Hey, uh, you monkey man, you can go outside. Outside, buddy, that's right. This here bathroom is for people, people. Let's face it, our species isn't known for its tolerance, and maybe that's part of why so many people reject evolution. It puts us too close to the animals and makes us an ape. Maybe that intolerance is why those other human species disappeared about the same time Homo sapiens showed up. But who knows? If we blurred the line between us and the rest of the animal kingdom, maybe we would see ourselves for what we are, just another recently evolved leaf on the tree of life. As an evolutionary biologist, I like to explain as much as I can through the gaze of history and ancestor-descendant relationships. As the saying goes, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. A phrase evolutionary biologists have heard so often that I can picture their eyes rolling out of their heads and onto the floor as they read this. So hackneyed has it become. Whatever, established evolutionary biologists are just reading this book to look for mistakes. No matter how cliched the great geneticist Theodosius Dobzhansky's words have become, they still ring true. You just can't explain life on Earth without seeing the connections between organisms, connections we represent as the tree of life. One organism giving rise to another, passing along traits like those five fingers. Sometimes those five fingers become a bat's wing, sometimes a walrus's flipper, sometimes a woman's hand. The origins are the same, evidence of our common ancestry. But evolution is also the thing that doesn't make sense, that bad back, our strange knee joint, those man nipples. You got to take the good with the bad. You can only explain it through the change from one organism to another. Evolution doesn't make things perfect. It just kills individuals that aren't good enough to survive long enough to pass on their genes. Evolution's a wizard saying, you shall not pass, to, be, to beings that are less fit than those that are worthy. The product of evolution are the survivors we see living today, modified bits and pieces that we can trace back from one ancestor to another. The evidence is in the genetic code, DNA and RNA. We all share, and in the flesh and bones and behavior we can see, and in fossils spanning nearly four billion years of change. Hi, this is Teresa Gildner, one of the associate producers for the Sausage of Science. We hope that you've enjoyed this excerpt from Explaining Evolution with Dr. Chakrabarti. We'll now rebroadcast the original interview from November 2018, which covers various modes for science communication and outreach, as well as techniques that we can use to discuss topics and evolution. Please enjoy. Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris, how are you? I am contorted like a pretzel at the moment. 
trying not to knock over the microphone again? Yeah, yeah. I'm in this high-tech whisper booth at the University of Alabama waiting for our guest to arrive and twist it over so I can look out the window and trying to not knock the microphone out of its cradle again. Yeah, I've got to be honest. From my perspective, that really looks like a torture room. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> torturous because I don't actually know what I'm doing. So every time I get here, I break out into sweat. And I think we sound better sometimes when I'm just in my office where I have my plants around me and my soothing piles of garbage and clutter. And, you know, the world is right. There is something to be said just for the comfort of one's own mess, isn't there? For sure, for sure. <laughs> so speaking of uh, one's own mess, what's going on with you? Oh, we are in letter of recommendation season, aren't we? Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, we are. I mean, I'm not sure quite when this, this podcast will actually be put up and hopefully letter of recommendation season will be over by the time this gets posted. But the amount of effort and energy that goes into letters of recommendation and good ones, because you can't agree to write one unless you can agree to write a good one. It's a lot of time. It is a lot of time. And especially when it's someone who really, not to say that we're not writing great letters for all students, but let's face it, we're not writing great letters for all students, nor do all <laughs> students necessarily deserve it. And I hate to say no, I do say no sometimes, but the students who really deserve it, who you really want to see succeed and who you've worked with for a long time, you just know so much. I actually find those are harder. I find the really amazing students, it's more difficult for me to express in written form how fantastic they really are. And I will often even put a caveat like that in the letter. Like, I'm having a hard time writing this letter because words cannot express how much I think of this student. I fail with words also. I'm like, I've used that superlative so many times. If they check the file of letters for me, they will find that superlative in nine out of 10 letters. So I'm always looking for something special. So there's always falling back on the words fail me because this student is so amazing. Yeah. And then I go through and list why I think that person is amazing in some form of something not so much list, but you know, a narrative, if you will. But still, I always feel like I just can't do them justice. Well, you know, it's funny um, that you brought that up. I wasn't necessarily getting ready to transition into introducing our guests, but it's topically <laughs> relevant. So the guests we have today may seem counterintuitive to most of our human biologists out there because Dr. Prasanta Chakrabarty is an ichthyologist. So he studies fish, but one of his areas of expertise is actually outreach and teaching the public science. And he has a book that he's written and, and blogs about a guide to academia. And one of the blog pieces that he'd written was about how to ask for letters of recommendation mm. and get the kind that will serve you well. And that's, that's actually one of the things I'm hoping to talk to him about today is just that some of the interactions between our disciplines in terms of the science, but also the logistics of an academic life. At Prasanta's expense, not only is he an ichthyologist, but he's an ichthyologist from LSU, and we're at Alabama, and there's going to be some LSU-Alabama joke-making that will take place that will be lost on most of our listeners, especially by the time this plays. But he's given a lecture tonight for the Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution. Making evolution accessible to everyone, yeah. but maybe something similar. 
Well, let's just start with your origin story. How'd you get into your field? Yeah, I grew up in New York City and, you know, a place that it's not easy to see a lot of wild things. And yeah. so I'd search out the zoos and museums. And I grew up going to the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan. And I looked up at the big dinosaurs and I asked my parents, how do I do that? <laughs> and uh, they told me that, you know, you study zoology. And I was like, okay. And I never kind of looked down from the dinosaurs. So huh. I was happy to do that. I went to uh, McGill University strictly because they have a zoology degree. And I was born in Montreal. So it was like free, which is awesome. Really? <laughs> it was pretty cheap. Wow. And, McGill? Uh, McGill. It's like in state, but in, in, in country. Nice. <laughs> That's amazing. That's fantastic. So I didn't live there very long. So I was like an anchor baby for Canada. Because my parents moved me to New York when I was one. So I totally gamed the system to go to McGill. But I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And um, they have two campuses. One campus is at McDonald campus. is surrounded by a, a big park, a 700-acre forest. And plenty of places to look for salamanders and fish and cool stuff. So it was amazing. And I went to do a, an undergraduate research experience, NSF REU, back in New York, I think in my sophomore year. I worked on fish with this wonderful woman, Melanie Stiazny, who taught me all about cichlids and got a publication out of it. And that put me on the path to studying fishes. And I still do that. <laughs> cool. So I asked you to come here because you have a chapter in our book, Evolution Education in the American South, about using fish to teach evolution to your students. And you've done multiple TED Talks. So I'm curious how you've transitioned from your interest in dinosaurs and your interest in fish to what is, I see, a, a considerable emphasis on public outreach and education. Yeah, fish is because there's so many of them. Uh, it gives you an opportunity to go to lots of different parts of the world and to to think about vertebrate evolution in the aspects from deep time to more recent. And, you know, we're fish. And, you know, whenever I tell somebody that, they either look at me like I'm crazy or like they misheard me or something. And And the reason we're fish is because we're vertebrates. And so our backbones, our knees, our brains, all those systems that we have in us started in this aquatic environment and how that's transformed into us, you know, this dumb looking big lollipop head, <laughs> back, bad need, flat footed ape. <laughs> so that transformation is really fascinating to me and all the mistakes and, you know, how you turn a, a beautiful fish into a, a something that has to fight gravity and walk around and give birth to a, a big-headed baby. Uh, all those things fascinate me. And I found it's a, a useful tool to, to get people's attention. And so um, I like that, mm. that aspect of, of studying evolution through the, the fishy perspective. Science public outreach is a big passion of mine as well. And I try to do a lot locally. One of the issues I find 
is so much of it's preaching to the choir. People who will go to TED Talks or other outreach events are people who are already interested in science and open to having that discussion. I was wondering how much you've thought about or do uh, of trying to reach the audience that we probably need to reach more, the non-choir. Sure, yeah. I mean, TED definitely has a very kind of upper crust audience for the, the people in the crowd. And so the TED Talks are, are just so fun and amazing because of that vibe you get from this very loving audience. But the reach of those talks is just enormous. So uh, I think both of the talks are at a, more than a million views now. And I can never get a million anything you know, doing not a million books, no one's but TED Talks. Once they get out of that room, they reach this enormous audience. And it's true, a lot of people are going to TED to be educated about stuff. But once it gets onto YouTube and to other things, then it's like anybody searching evolution or fish, they might come across it. And that's when you get the, you know, the broader audience. And yeah, just by looking at some of the comments, I know I've, I've reached people that are not part of the choir. Mm. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. It's really an amazing experience. I didn't know much about TED before becoming a fellow. And I just love it. It's opened my eyes too, just like learning about architecture and dancers. And there are not a lot of biologists there. So it's mostly mm -hmm. tech and entertainment. So it's kind of fun being the, the goofy scientist. <laughs> so how did you make that connection? Is that something you nurtured or went out for? Is that, how'd that happen? Yeah, I was asked to do a TEDx LSU talk. So that's TEDx is the multi-country, multi-institution. There's thousands of them around the world. And I was asked to do one for LSU and I talked about natural history and the connection between natural history and evolution. And they told me to apply to be a fellow. And I said, okay, you know, that sounds like more work. <laughs> somehow they picked me out of the pile and interviewed me a couple times. And it is the most fun thing I've ever done. Hmm. TED is incredibly fun amazing talks, uh, emotional talks, and just a really good group. So the fellows program, I would recommend anybody who's interested in that kind of stuff to apply. So what do you actually do as a fellow? What's, what's part of that? So you give a talk at the first one that you go to and you hang out with other fellows. They kind of nurture you through like, it's SciComm camp. They teach you how to make your message clear and how to speak so that as many people as possible can understand mm -hmm. and so that you can have the biggest reach to sell yourself and your, your ideas. And I really love that. That's really it. And just the other group of people. So they pick 20 fellows a year. It's an amazing group. And so I'm really honored to be part of it. That sounds awesome. The other piece I think is connected that I wanted to ask you about, which is, it looks like your blog turned into a book. You have a book called Guide to Academia. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that came to be and the importance of that for you. Yeah, that's a, it was a really odd experience. I didn't have any book writing or publishing experience. It starts actually with a description of a new species, believe it or not. So I described this pancake batfish from Louisiana and the description happened to happen during the oil spill and it got a ton of press. And so I went to a conference and somebody from a publisher came up to me and said, hey, do you have any book ideas that you're thinking about? And I said, 
you know, I've been scribbling together just because I was a new professor, just kind of this list of things to think about as a graduate student coming into academia. And I think I had like 20 pages. And he's like, can you make this 150 pages? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and it was Wiley Blackwell. And they were just really nurturing and, and helpful in that happening. And it's weird. It's a, I think publishing that book was less painful than most of my publications. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I just turned it into you know, a guide for students who are interested in staying in academia from undergrad to post-tenure and what the process is like. And not too much preachy stuff, not what happened to me specifically, but what I've mm. learned from other people and my mentors and just putting it into one little, hopefully readable little text. And it was fun to do. And, and the few people that have come to me and said that it, it was meaningful and useful to them was worth it, you know, whatever I got for it. It was, I, I love that it impacted people and, and made a difference for them. Well, we know that a lot of our audience are graduate students. We mm -hmm. we have had them at our conferences tell us that they're regular listeners to the podcast. We interview them and we generally solicit advice from our guests um, to pass along. Do you have anything that jumps out that resonated with folks from your book? Yeah, so what I tell grad students is that they, you'll see statistics, stuff like most people who start in a graduate program are interested in staying in academia, but most don't stay in academia after they graduate. And that's sometimes seen as a, a negative, and I see it as a positive. You don't have to stay in academia. My book is about staying in academia, <laughs> but there's lots of avenues that are amazing, even if you don't finish. So there are opportunities in industry and in policy and in education that are just as fulfilling and that you discover going through the process of, of the graduate program. And it's not failure, it's just a new avenue that you discover. Yeah, I think we as uh, advisors and mentors need to be more sensitive to that and more capable of advising that academia isn't the end all be all for the vast majority of our students. And we need to be better about helping them seek out those opportunities and helping them come to terms because everyone feels that guilt if they don't finish or they leave academia. We need to be a lot better at that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm training people to do outreach specifically. So I've had master's students who did research outreach projects. Mm. I have a PhD student who, whose committee I'm on who's doing a mix of collections-based research and outreach. And those are fun. And we need those people. We need communicators out there. And I'm not just training ichthyologists because there's yeah. enough of those. They'll be my competition. So the mm. less competition, the <laughs> Good just point. kidding. <laughs> Good point. So speaking of which, I don't want to just talk about those things. I'd like to hear more about your research because it is fascinating. So he's been to do collections work or research at, over, at least over 30 countries, according to his most recent CV. I'd like to hear about some of your travels and what your research focus has been. Maybe some of your peak experiences, some of your less peak experiences in those mm -hmm. travels. Fun times. So all my research starts from collections-based research. And so as a curator of fishes, I get to go to weird places to look for new species or to look for things that are diverging, that are different and disjunct from some other member of that family that I'm 
focusing on for that trip. So that can lead to deep evolutionary questions, or it could be something as simple as, hey, we don't have these in the tree of life of fishes, so let's get them in there by collecting some. And we're sacrificing a few individuals to save the many. So a lot of the research ends up in conservation work where we're, hey, these are new, we need to better understand this area, this part of the world. So some work I've done is in cave caves in Madagascar and Australia where people hadn't really looked at the fauna carefully and there were new species there. And they turned out to be each other's closest relatives, oddly, these cave fishes in Australia and Madagascar, which is the coolest thing I've ever discovered. So those cave fish, no eyes, no pigment. They can't swim across an ocean. They live in fresh water. So we dated them uh, using fossils and DNA in the Gobi tree of life. And they were as old as when the continents were last together. So I was like, nice, good job. So I love big patterns on the tree. So figuring out who's related to whom and how that can tell us about geological history. Those same trips, you know, like that Madagascar trip, everybody got sick. <laughs> we named the species Murari Bay, which means big sickness. <laughs> Some funny names out there that we, I went to University of Michigan, but we discovered a new species in Indiana and we named it Hoosierai. <laughs> as, a, as a Hoosier, I like that a lot. <laughs> I also am in a University of Michigan alum, so I like that as well. <laughs> so there's two funny things in that descriptions just to show that scientists aren't all stuck up. So Michelin Man has a name. It's Bibindum. And uh, I snuck in the Bibindum name because this fish has like fat rolls. And so I said Bibindum-like and people were like, what does that mean? I'm like, oh, you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to look that up. And it got published in the etymology where you explain why something's described. And so when I, we called it Hoosierai, I said, you know, despite going to the University of Michigan, there's a number of reasons ichthyology is important from University of Indiana. Some important ichthyologists worked there and worked on these cave fishes that are really very close to uh, mm. where the university is. So huh. it was kind of fun doing those, throwing them in there. That's cool. Facts. But it's also nice to hear another alum. We've had a couple of Michigan alums now. <laughs> Well, you know, there's some there's some hub schools out there that will like generate a lot of research dollars. They do. They do. What year were you? I finished in 06. My for PhD. graduate work or undergraduate work? Yeah, PhD. I was in Ann Arbor for five years. Okay. So I finished my undergrad in 2007. So we overlapped oh, wow. <laughs> in two very different realms. I remember you now. You know, <laughs> I right? gotta leave. Saw each other all the time. <laughs> <Still living>. <laughs> <laughs> in all your adventures, where has been any high points? I mean, the research high point is fantastic, but yeah. where, where have you been traveling that you've... Uh... Um, I loved this recent trip, the Boiling River. There are no fish in this river that's so hot that it, it reaches near boiling. And I went with a, a colleague, Andres Russo, a grad student at a Southern Methodist in Texas. And he had pretty much discovered this place and no ichthyologist had been there. And I was like, I'll go. <laughs> with a bunch of other people, some Nat Geo people. It was really fun to have this diverse group. And I just kept climbing around and finding places where there could be fish, you know, adjacent to this really hot river. And that was fun because I'd never been to some place like that where it was uh, not your typical fish habitat. Hmm. We collected potentially new species. Actually, I was talking to some colleagues here 
about what's what's out there and so that was really fun i love remote places and the more you have to hike into it and the more you have to go where where other people haven't looked for what you're looking for the better because that's the chances that you'll find something new i've described i think 13 new species now and oh wow serendipitous yeah yeah it's amazing how much luck plays a role in those kinds of things Mm -hmm. right place right time so what's next for you so january haiti you know, I like to say we, we discover new species and, and mix diseases uh, to find out like what's going on. But Haiti is the poorest country in the West, lowest mm. water quality in the West. And so discovering if the species that have been known from there are still there should help, we hope, better understand how the fauna has changed, but also maybe help the people there. Their freshwater is mainly coming from the same sources where these fishes live. Mm. Um, they are, and we're going to bring people from the area to collect with us, maybe learn from them about their fish fauna and, and maybe teach them as well about what they may have missed. And so that kind of mix natural history work plus a little bit of conservation plus a little bit of working with local people is, is always really fun. And, and mm-hmm. hey, I, I just can't wait to speak some French over there too, some, <laughs> some Patois. So. We'll see. How's your, how's your French, your patois? It's, I don't know how my patois is. My <laughs> French is great for, you know, Cajun French. <laughs> my, my family, my wife is French-Canadian, so I learned French as my daughters were growing up, so I uh, learned with them. So I think I can get around. Nice. <laughs> well, it, that's actually really interesting for our listeners. We had a couple folks on here who study water insecurity. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, an increasing interest from a conservation and a humanitarian perspective on, on not just food insecurity, but the quality of water around the world. And so as natural disasters happen mm-hmm. with increasing pollution of globalization, and I imagine, I know those folks have been talking about working across disciplines, but I imagine y- you guys have a lot of information that can be shared, obviously, when fish are dying there's a problem with the water so so i have a slide that i show you know how little fresh water there actually is on earth you know most of the water we see is marine less than two percent of it is fresh water most of that's ice in greenland and and the arctics and so our drinkable water is all the habitat for the beautiful freshwater mollusks we have around this area all the freshwater habitat for fishes that live there and all our drinking water so we have to share and we're fighting wars over oil today but fresh water tomorrow Mm. and so figuring out what's still out there uh, is imperative that's some of the most endangered habitats on earth that reminds me of one of these dystopian books i've been reading (laughs) karen knows i've been on an nk jemison book and she's great at world building but it's not too distant future and water is a is a precious commodity um, and which actually segues nicely, see how I did that, to our final <laughs> question. Kara, you want to ask it? What fun books are you reading right now that have nothing to do with your research? Yeah, I love adventure stories, but it's funny. I drove from Baton Rouge to Tuscaloosa last night after trick-or-treating. <laughs> I only did one thing, which was listening to this Ulysses S. Grant biography which is fantastic. He was such a doofus. 
he's like one of those like the so overly trusting people like a like a house cat or, or like a you know puppy or something that was just like oh yeah yeah invest my money and he did that like 20 times and he was always broke <laughs> and the civil war is the best thing that ever happened to this guy you know, oh like, my god if the civil war didn't happen he would be like lost to history but it was the perfect timing and and he was the perfect person for that for that time so it's just really fascinating and he did a lot of global traveling after so i'm waiting to hear that but yeah that has nothing to do with my research i was just super fascinated by biographies and, and people and how they've lived their lives and circumstances so i'll have to check yeah. that out because I found out in, in the work that I do, I work in American Samoa, and he was the president when colonial mercantile companies started in the South Pacific to basically, in one account, drive the locals to reach out to the U.S. Navy and the U.S. to say, please make us a territory, which sounds oh. completely huh. not consistent with our current view of colonialism, but basically they were like, keep the German colonial mm. uh, the mercantile companies from taking everything, make us a U.S. protectorate. And Grant was like, what? Who? Where? <laughs> like, and was healing from the Civil War and was like, we don't have time for this. That sounds fascinating. I wonder if, if his, those aspects of his personality have any, uh, any impact on his presidency and how he handled mm. fiscal affairs at that level. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, doofus is a good yeah, word for he, That is not one I've heard describing Ulysses S. Grant before, and I love it. They almost, <laughs> like they the made him play uh, Desdemona in in a all male Othello play in the army because he was just like <laughs> like not looked up to. <laughs> There's totally something amazing about those historical biographies of people that we've all held up as super important and amazing, but when you get into their lives, it's always so much messier. And it reminds us how human <laughs> that even these yeah. important figures are. And so I love those as well. One of my favorites is one about Martin Luther. And that's a crazy story that I would highly recommend you look into as well. So you know who founded LSU? No. Sherman, who burnt down Atlanta. And that's that Sherman founded LSU. Huh? Did not know that. Was that his redemption? No, he did that first. Oh. Before the war. <laughs> so I'll start a university and then just go a burning. <laughs> you know. As you do. Fun fact. As you do. Fun fact. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been really awesome. How can people find out more about you and get in touch? Uh, if you can learn how to spell my name, I'm pretty easy to Google. <laughs> It'll definitely be on our show notes. So <laughs> I just like look up Prosanta somehow and I'm out there. That's true. He is. I, I did guy. that a lot. I think I actually spelled it wrong a few times too. He was, it was he was kind <laughs> enough on Twitter to correct me and the date of his talk so <laughs> you get every part of the every, part of it wrong every part of it, every single part and you're on twitter you have a fun uh twitter handle yeah if you can spell in broken cajun p-r-e-a-u-x is pro pro underscore fish and i'm chris you can find me at twitter at chris underscore l-y and i'm kara you can find me at kara akabak and this has been the Saucer of Science for the Human Biology Association. Hooray!